waves get lost in the ocean. Seven billion swimmers, man, I'm going through the motions. Hi, this is Nancy Herald, and welcome to my show, High Road to Humanity. In every episode, I tell you powerful true stories filled with great wisdom that you can use in your own life as you strive for a higher road to travel. My featured guests will have their own unique stories to tell that enlighten your mind and your soul. So kick back, relax, and learn the secret to success when you take the high road. Hey, it's Nancy Yeralt, and welcome to High Road to Humanity today. And again, we have a wonderful show for you today. Today, I've got a really cool guy. His name is Frank Apusciutti, and he's a PhD. He has a PhD, and he's going to talk to us about chrysalis crisis. Now, what is that? Well, it's how life's ordeals can lead to personal and spiritual transformation. And let me give you a little bit of info about Frank here. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and certified hypnotherapist, I love that, in private practice in Charlottesville, Virginia. He is founder and president of Association uh, Clinicians of Virginia, which provides uh, psychotherapy and organizational development services to individuals and businesses. So Dr. Pasciutti is the chairman of the Institutional Review Board at the Moreau Institute in Faber, Virginia, and he collaborates on research related to NDEs, psychic phenomena, and the survival of consciousness at the Division of Perceptual Studies, a research unit of the Department of Psychiatry, or I'm sorry, Psychiatry and Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Now, he's written this book, and I, I'll tell you what, I started to read this, and it's really interesting because he tells us how eventually um, we all become conscious of our spirituality, and that's what this is about. So welcome to High Road to Humanity, Frank. Thanks for coming. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, I just think this is really interesting, and I'm wondering if you would tell the story, because I thought it was pretty cool, how you tell the story of your family and mostly your mom and how you got into this work. Would you mind tell, telling the audience the story of how you decided you wanted, you know, to get into this field? Well, interestingly, I grew up in a family, uh, extended Italian family in New Jersey, in Newark, New Jersey. And okay. my, my uh, grandfather came over from Italy, but before he did, I, he was kind of influenced by the spiritualist movement that was going on in late 1800s in Europe. Okay. Um, and and uh, so I had an interesting blend because at the same time, my mother's family was more the family we allied with. Uh, my grandmother was a Catholic a churchgoer every day. And my um, so there was there was so part of part of the influence of my grandfather and another organization called the Rosicrucians, which my two of my uncles, my mother, one of my cousins joined. It's a non-sectarian mystical uh, organization that talks about a lot of phenomena that are more like uh, psychic experiences, right? And other ways of understanding, you know, spirituality in a non-religious way. So as I was growing up in the Catholic Church, you know, uh, I would get other uh, not only 1950s indoctrination there, but I was also getting it sort of um, reinterpreted to me through more mystical literature where, you know, the miracles might have been put in terms of paranormal phenomena. like Right. Uh, you know, and that's unusual, especially in that time, because people didn't want to talk about this stuff so much then. Well, you're absolutely right. And I was forewarned by my family that this is stuff you don't necessarily uh, put out on the street. And uh, nevertheless, I remember being in eighth grade and when the priest would come in every Monday morning to talk to us and give us a religion class, I once raised my hand and said, well, what about, what do you think about reincarnation? And I was kind of like, oh my goodness. My friends looked at me. I think I was just kind of showing off that I knew this big word or something, but I had already become familiar with that concept. So I I had always had an interest in this stuff. And then my mom, I was born to my mom who was, um, who had had uh, experienced MS back in the days, multiple sclerosis, when they thought it was Lou Gehrig's disease and thought she was going to die. And so she went on this real strong spiritual search, try to make meaning of her life. And her father got involved, her brothers got involved. And I, 10 years later, she stabilized and 10 years later had children. 
and I came along as a second child. So I was kind of an indirect beneficiary of her search for meaning and understanding. And her father uh, was also an early believer in mind and body kind of concepts. And then so it ran in the family. So the whole thing, it really ran in the family. And she, she was very spiritual, as you talk about. When she got MS, she had such a great attitude. I thought that was really cool how you talk about that in the book, how her, her positive attitude, even though she was bedridden at one point, yes? Oh, well, it took her, you know, it, very much so. And so I would see her, I mean, I only knew her to be in a wheelchair. Uh, and yet I'd often hear her laughing and cracking jokes on the phone with her sisters or laughing at TV shows or whistling oh. when she was in the kitchen doing things. So she was really an amazing person. And the last five years of her life, she was on her back in a hospital, believe it or not. They let her be in a hospital for five years. Okay. Uh, and MS takes you out slowly. So there was a, so, but nevertheless, right up until her last days, she can, she was still cogent and still held on to her faith. And one of them was, she just believed that all her experiences, uh, contributed to her soul's evolution. She believed in reincarnation. And even when I said, Mom, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, doesn't a part of you want to just get out of this body? It hasn't all been all that cooperative, you know? And she said, ah, you know, I'm still here. I'm still listening to your life and your sister's life. And my sisters and brother come by and visit me. And so I'm still in the game. I still want to be here. And right. she, wasn't, she wasn't physically suffering and, and she did. So, so that was a really powerful lesson for me. Right. Uh, Watch how that kind of crisis could be absorbed and still uh, watch her grow and transform. Um, and then I think what happened for me, just the transition over here, uh, what happened, I, I did explore other areas to go to school, uh, studied business administration and things. But one day I kind of like thought, ah, you know what, what am I really interested in? And I was interested in a lot of these, uh, these different phenomena. And right. I thought, what field? Is most closely associated to this and I made the assumption to think that psychology is and that kind of like early in my 20s pivoted into clinical psychology right. which I've led a couple life I'll have to admit for many of those years I continue <laughs> to keep my interest in a lot of this other stuff uh, kind of like on the QT for the most part so I didn't get marginalized out of the gates you know Right. No, I'm with you. And and so that's interesting because you knew you had to get into the mainstream, but you had to be careful about how you approach different things. And um, you've done a lot of work. And I, I read as much as your book as I could in this, this last week. It was very good. But you started to talk to different people um, about uh, near-death experiences and things like that. And that came into focus, I think. And we can talk about it when we come back. I know we've got one minute to break, but um, I want you to talk about the name of the book, which is Chrysalis Crisis. And I'm going to hold it up here so people can see it. We've only got one minute to go. Tell people what the name means. I know what it means, but I'd like for you to tell the audience before we run to break here. Oh, real quick. It's the idea that in the aftermath of the metamorphosis that the caterpillar goes through, uh, and, and as it's trying to emancipate uh, from the literal meltdown it went through, uh, there's a struggle to release itself from the, uh, from the cocoon. Right. And the struggle has two purposes. One is to emancipate and free its wings. The other one is the actual struggle itself strengthens the wings for flight. So, so I often, I thought that the idea is coming off of a crisis once you get through the initial adjustment period. There's still a struggle there to make sense out of it and to and to uh and it usually leads to growth hang on we have more stories to tell on high road to humanity check out nancy's website nancyyearout.com to book your first 30-minute coaching session for free to get you on your high road hey all you high road listeners out there i just want to take a moment to share with you our new sponsor I've been working with BestRadioTravel.com to bring the lowest hotel prices to my loyal listeners. Stay tuned during the show to hear more about how you can save 15 to 30% off your hotel rate. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a miracle? I think most of us probably have. Whether it's a financial emergency, health crisis, or some other serious situation, most of us know the feeling of helplessness and even hopelessness. Now imagine having to wait for a miracle for six months, even a year or more. That's the situation for thousands of children all around the world who are waiting for a sponsor. Their only hope of escaping the poverty around them is someone like you choosing them. 
This is Nancy Yarrow, and I'm joining with Compassion to give you the chance to be the miracle in a child's life. For a little more than a dollar a day, you'll provide the physical, emotional, and spiritual support a child needs, not just to survive poverty, but to be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Don't make a child wait one day longer for their miracle. You can find out more or sponsor a child right now. Just go to my website, nancyyearout.com. That's www.nancyyearout.com. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Hey, welcome back to High Road to Humanity. And I am here today with Frank Pasciutti, and his book is Chrysalis Crisis. I'm holding it up. We can get this at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Is that right, Frank? Barnes and Noble, Amazon, yes. Cool, uh, cool. Hey, before we went to break, you were telling us what chrysalis crisis means, and you were saying it's like you know you metamorphose from uh, you know into a butterfly um, coming out of the cocoon, and you kind of use that analogy uh, for when we go through a crisis in our own life uh, that eventually you know once the crisis has you know, settle down, I guess. I don't know if the right verbiage, but then you start to see the lesson and and the blessing in what happened. Can you address that? Because it's hard for people, you know, when someone dies or you lose your job or you're going through a divorce um, crisis, you know, what do you suggest or what do you tell people about it? Let me give you an example I use in the book. A fellow who I work with here in town who was a very brilliant man, very cerebral, uh, very involved with his work, at the university physicist and his wife held down the home front with two kids, two young children. And, uh, she suddenly died. Now he was a pretty introverted guy and liked his work, liked being in his lab. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, he was not very aware of his own feelings and nor did he do that social interpersonal thing much or deal with the kids feelings. And so, so you can imagine in the aftermath of losing his wife, suddenly he yeah. had a, feelings and he had to deal with his kids feelings as right. part of through it so my first when he came to see me my work initially was to try to help him get stabilized and just kind of deal with the initial shock of the whole thing and and however his in his ability to try to integrate and move through the grieving process uh it wasn't easy for him because he wasn't aware or registered much with his feelings of sadness um, he was a great guy, and uh, uh, he he wasn't aware of maybe his feelings of anger and fear. You might say his intellectual IQ was really high, while his emotional and social IQ were lower. Right. Well, you know, I read this story, and it almost seemed like, and I wanted to ask you this since you're telling the story, it almost seemed like the relationship he had with his wife was perfect because she was the one that told him how he felt. Exactly. Well, yeah, and sometimes we can compensate in our relationships where we pick up where our strengths kind of offset the weaknesses yeah. the or deficits of the other. But, you know, you hopefully you'll learn from the other person and maybe incorporate those abilities. Um, right. But in his case, it happened suddenly. And so he had to adjust. And so a lot of my work just in helping him get through the experience was trying to help him be aware of the feelings he was having and not mm-hmm. just be aware of them cognitively. But be okay with feeling sad and even crying when necessary or, or feeling angry that his whole life got turned upside down. And then right. as you get in touch with your feelings, as you know, you can be more able to empathize with others. And so particularly with his children, being comfortable with other people expressing feelings when you're not comfortable yourself. And so that was a big awakening for him. And then also because he was so reclusive in his work, he had to grow socially. All of a sudden he was the one who had to go to the meetings with the teachers and he had All to right. negotiate the babysitters and dealing with, you know, play groups and all those things. So he really had to come out of himself. Uh, he was almost like thrown out, you know, of himself. And so, uh, yeah. it, it, he transformed, he, he started changing very significantly, had a rebalance work and home life. And, uh, and so he was a great example of how, uh, changing his thinking intellectually, changing, changing his 
expanding his awareness of feelings and social awareness, his identity. Many of the 10 key areas I identify in the book uh, were on the table for him to have to expand and grow. One thing I wanted you to tell us about, and and I don't know if this also sparked your interest in getting into telepathy and clairvoyance and the study of all that stuff. You tell a story about your uncle, um, Uncle Atlo, and they called him Uncle Atlas. Can you tell that story? Because that that well, kind of triggered you. Is that right? Am I yeah. pronouncing it proper? Well, yes. Yeah, some of the, the story of my uncle, who was my unmarried uncle, and uh, while well, I lived in a 16-family uh, apartment building that my grandfather built, and so he was across the hall with another unmarried brother and my grandmother and my grandfather, and so we were like clearly in this nest of a lot of extended family. And so he had an experience in the war where, you know, he was uh, coming back over enemy lines. And he was kind of a, a leader, man's man. He was a, a strong guy and not wishy-washy at all. Uh, but he had a, a really strong premonition that where they were going to settle one night did not feel safe to him. Uh, and so his fellow, you know, soldiers kind of thought, what is Adels, why is Adels having a problem with this? He's usually like the go-to guy, but he just could not get comfortable. He just felt something bad was going to happen. And, a point, and, you know, and persisted. And so eventually, you know, they checked him out, but maybe he had battle fatigue, which is what they called PTSD right. in those days. And so, yeah. long story short, they actually went, they had come over from enemy lines. They actually went backtracked into enemy lines and found a, another at least suitable place for the night. And during the night, mortar was going on, lots of bombing and stuff. They decided to get up and get out early. And they did. When they backtracked over where they had... Uh, gone by that spot the night before the place was completely blown up they would have all died yeah he had his own experience with felt with what felt to him like a premonition um and that also you have to realize he's his father my mother's father they already talked about these things as possibilities precognition and they they so he but he wanted to learn more about it and that's what took him into exploring organizations like the rosicrucians and also other uh, organizations, Edgar Casey's work right. was pretty popular. But not only that, he also got into the literature a bit and drew, and drew my mother in. And so those I were see. influences in my family. So when I you was, got into your work, I mean, when was I, you tell a story in the book? Um, you start to you start to see patients in your practice, and then you start to have people who have had near death experiences. You talk about a man who had a heart attack and that, and and did that kind of, once you start to see patients then you start to hear this from them and then it starts to all come together is what I thought. Well, you're, you're right about that story, but it started earlier. It was actually in my doctoral program. There was a, I was at Michigan state university and I was a, I was a, uh, an intern and we had a big staff of about 60 people and one of the and everybody was assigned having to do intakes and then if they couldn't pick the person up they put it present it before the staff and anybody who had openings would they okay. presented this young man who came in and he seemed to the intake person to be psychotic he had said he thought he was the angel of death and that uh-huh. does sound crazy right so right. i he's and then they said so this is 1977 79 somewhere around there and um so he, the, the intake person also said he sort of sig- said he had something like a near-death experience the summer before. And I had already been reading about this. I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I read this other Rosicrucian material. And, and right before that, the book Life After Life was a bestseller written by a fellow from Charlottesville, uh, Raymond Moody. And I realized that um, I thought, you know, let me pick this guy up because he's interesting to me. Now, here I have an opportunity to work with somebody who's having what might be considered a non-conventional problem, and I'm going to get supervision. It was a little scary, so I picked him up, and um, I found that he, when he first came, the year before I started that program, I actually lived in a house as a clinician working with schizophrenics. So I almost had a visceral sense of somebody who was schizophrenic, and I didn't. Right. Get that so you sense. thought you. So you knew maybe he wasn't schizophrenic. It only took me about a session to realize the way he was talking. He was frightened, but. You know, he had what he called experiences of pre- uh, premonitions. One of them, which was very popular at the time, was he had a dream that the body of who was then the prime minister of Italy, Aldo Moro, who was kidnapped, 
uh, was found dead in the trunk of a car, shared it with his roommate, and lo and behold, a couple of days later, that very information came out. Uh, he had also wow. had a, he had also had a couple of premonitions about people in his family dying, and they did indeed die. Okay. Now the interesting the interesting thing was I did not know this at the time, but the research since then has shown that people who have near death experiences tend to have increased capacity for what you might call psychic faculties. It's almost okay. like near-death experience loosens the tether between yeah. mind's awareness and its attachment to physicality. Yeah. So uh, my colleague now and friend here at the University of Virginia, Bruce Grayson, I did not know, but he was only 85 miles down the road at the University of Michigan. I wish I knew that. I would have gone to supervision. But in either case, my two supervisors, both were amazing with me, my group supervisor and my individual supervisor, and I shared with them not only was I interested in all this stuff, but I was interested in reincarnation and all these things. And they said, well, you need to you need to get down to Charlottesville, Virginia. There's a department down there run by this man, Ian Stevenson. They explore all these things, near-death experiences, mediumship, and reincarnation. And so that set the tone for me to start looking towards Charlottesville as a possible place to go to after I finished my doctorate. And, nice. and I also presented that case to my intern. My, my, I put together the most challenging group of senior clinicians before I did my intern uh, presentation and said, hey, save me from myself if I'm totally out to lunch here. Folks <laughs> got a lot of encouragement from people. They said, hey, you know, you just got to get in there and you got to find support and, and trust yourself. And I, I felt really okay. encouraged by that. Right. So that's kind of bridging both of the conventional kinds of problems and what you might consider the non-conventional problems. Yeah. Well, and, and once you started into your, so then you moved to Charlottesville and started a practice there, or you moved there and got involved in the program that is there? Well, mostly, mostly I came here. And interestingly, it took me, I, I came down here, I made a little pilgrimage back about two years before I moved here. Uh, and I, uh, as as uh, the universe would have it, two years later, I met a woman who's been my wife for 39 years. And, oh, wow. Uh, Congratulations. She ended up getting two job offers. One was in Detroit, Michigan, which at a, lot, at a clinic that I was familiar with, a psychiatric clinic. And she said, I got this other job at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Never been there, never heard of it. And I said, well, I have <laughs> That's so crazy. So that also became a major well, attraction to Charlottesville. Right, right. I'm from Michigan, by the way. FYI, I don't think I, I, I don't say that very often, but yeah, I went to school in Michigan. Um, so because of all these experiences that you've had in your clinical experiences, when so when somebody comes in now and says, hey, I had a near death experience, how do you how do you deal with it? I mean, how do you what do you do? Does it take a while or, or talk to us about that? Well, it's interesting in that a lot of people have what you might call these anomalous or paranormal experiences. Uh, oh, we got about 30 seconds to go. They're telling me here. So we're going to have to talk about the near-death experiences when we come back. Hey, you guys, we're here with Frank Pasciutto, and his book is Chrysalis Crisis. And if you're watching me on video, I'm holding it up right now. And just so y'all know, I'm going to do some psychic readings next week. If y'all want to call in, the number is um, 903-787-5887. I'm getting that in real quick before we go to break. We will be right back on High Road to Humanity, but make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or download directly from Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, so you never miss an episode of The High Road. Toginet Radio has partnered with one of the largest travel booking engines in the world to offer savings of 15% to 30% or more on hotel booking fees through our own web portal, www.bestradiotravel.com. Discover the discount you can receive by going to bestradiotravel.com forward slash Nancy to see for yourself. This is a custom booking site for the listeners of my show through Toginet Radio. We have negotiated special rates at over 650,000 hotels worldwide to save our customers money. Our members leverage our massive buying power to save thousands of dollars by booking with us. BestRadioTravel.com can beat the best prices offered by any other major travel booking website. Please go to BestRadioTravel.com slash Nancy to sign up and enjoy the discounts. That is BestRadioTravel.com forward slash Nancy. 
feel like something is missing in your life? Do you feel lost or alone? Do the things you buy for yourself lose their luster quickly? Are you searching for fulfillment within your heart and soul? What if you were given the ability to change your life for the better? To create what you want for yourself? What if I told you you have the ability to tap into the universal energy to design the life you desire? This was my discovery many years ago. As a businesswoman and a single mom, I had no choice but to pay attention to what the universe was revealing to me. And I learned how to use it for my benefit. When you wake up and pay attention to the messages that the universe is showing you, your life will change for the better. Because we all hold the ability to tap into the universal energy to enhance our love life, our career, our finances, anything you wish. This energy was created for our use, and it's free. Now, I'm excited to share this information with you in my book, Wake Up, The Universe is Speaking to You. It's available to you on my website at www.nancyyearout.com. That's N-A-N-C-Y-Y-E-A-R-O-U-T.com, Barnes & Noble, and Amazon. And thanks for picking up my book. And may the energy of the universe bless you. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now welcome back to the High Road. Hey, welcome back to High Road to Humanity, and this is Nancy, you're out, your host. And hey, really quick, I want to mention one of our sponsors. It's called bestradiotravel.com, and if you go to bestradiotravel.com slash Nancy, um, you will get really good rates on hotels. So guys, check it out, bestradiotravel.com slash Nancy. And we're here, we're back with Frank Pasciutto and Pasciutti, I'm sorry, and he is in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we are just talking about NDEs, and I was asking him if he was intuitive, and he is intuitive, and he said that he brings, he is, I guess, referred a lot of patients, is that right, Frank, who have had dreams or near-death experiences because of the work that you do, you're not judgmental, I guess, is, is the word for it, Yes. Well, yeah, I think that there's always a cost. People are always uh, cautious to tell a therapist that they've had experiences that the majority of the world don't believe are valid and are always afraid. But when they get frightened enough, they have what, what we call a spiritual emergency. And that was a name that Stan Groff, who's considered the father of transpersonal psychology, gave for people who have experiences that fall outside the realm of what might be considered normal, but they're not abnormal. And that's one of the distinguishing ways I look at it and, and, and articulated in my book that there's what's normal. It's not necessarily normal because they are pretty extreme and outliers, but they're not outliers on the other end, which would be abnormal. And even paranormal, the word itself means alongside of. So I put them on a continuum. I, of course, do check and see whether I'm dealing with somebody who's delusional, fraudulent, uh, psychotic, hallucinating, whatever. I mean, I have the abilities from my conventional training to rule out. But when they are actually having an experience, many times they're frightened by it because it's so foreign that they need, right. inform- they need information. And so I'll point them into there's a lot of information out there that's yeah. been accumulated over the past 125 years about phenomena that are legitimate and have been, you know, like, you know, statistically proven beyond chance. Uh, and that, however, it's so foreign to our understanding of time and space uh, or sense of actuality of spirit that people that people uh, that they, they think that they're losing their mind and they may not. Yeah, be right. Right. Well, no, because I have those experiences, too. But I know I'm quite sane. <laughs> but I like you had experience with my Good. family. Yeah. My grandma was really into it and always was into Edgar Casey and all of that. And so I was always interested as you were as a child, you know, about this kind of stuff and always really wanted to, to know more about it. And then of course became more intuitive as time went on. And, and, um, you know, you talk about as people start to open up spiritually and have these experiences, you talk about psychic openings, but you also talk about something called Kundalina energy. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause I don't know a ton about it, but I hear about it. Can you tell the audience what that is? Well, there's a, there's an understanding, particularly well, coming 
the East that we actually have an energy inside our bodies that is uh, that moves through us and we have these chakras that are within us and that as that energy moves through it awakens these different areas uh, and you know these centers are you know the root center which can both activate the sexual energy but also activate spiritual or activate creative energy moves up and through other chakras the heart center uh, the, the the center around sp- uh, speech and expression and then the higher centers the psychic centers so that's been around for I think that understanding since the days of Pantajali who's the father of, uh, of yoga 4,000 years ago uh, and uh, out of that you know train of thinking Buddhism arose so mm-hmm. there is but when people actually have these experiences they're frightened by them because they're very physical and you know uh, they start worrying about uh, you know that of course we want to always rule out conventional explanations because if you're having different things I often tell people well let's get yourself a CT scan or an MRI or an fMRI and do all the things we know that Western science is quite capable of doing but oftentimes it's hard these are elusive it's sort of like the meridians uh, in, in acupuncture you know you have a sense that mm-hmm. this energy exists uh, and people work with it but it doesn't lend itself to our typical forms of measurement and so yeah, unless you experience it. Well, and do you, don't you feel like, I feel like that more and more people are um, talking about these things, about dreams and about premonitions and using their abilities. And you hear so many people talk about raising the consciousness now. I agree. I mean, I think about just in the earliest days when I was getting in the field, meditation was kind of radical. Doing yoga was kind of like not yeah. really all that popular. I remember starting that. I remember thinking about I was on a track team in college, and I remember when I read my first book on yoga back in the early 70s, I thought, well, this is similar to the stretching we did before we worked out. And then I, and then I was reading how people will do yoga as a lead entree into meditating, sort of stretch the body, get yourself in a centered space, and then right. meditate. And so now it's very popular. And I also think as meditation gets more popular and people drop into these states of consciousness that are conducive for those very subtle impressions of a psychic nature to cross the threshold of awareness, more of that is going to be happening. And, right. and that's when people get frightened and have these spiritual emergencies and they start wondering, well, how did I know that? Or where did that come from? And even dream work. You know, mm-hmm. people, if you, don't, uh, if you don't pay attention, just like if you don't pay attention, if you don't believe these things, uh, sometimes you can actually, or if they frighten you, you can inhibit your ability to register them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and our society has, you know, pushed that whole thing down. And I, it's nice to see that it is coming back and it's okay to be intuitive and it's okay to know things. It doesn't make you weird and nobody wants to put you away because, you know, um, maybe you had a, a, you know, a near death experience and now you can talk to the dead, you know. So, uh, I think it's really great that you do this work. And I think you've probably helped a lot of people realize that they're not crazy, but maybe learn to, you help them uh, with their spiritual growth. Is that correct? Well, yeah. And, and the idea behind the book is to say that we have a lot of these, I, I break it out into 10 keys, but we have a lot of these dimensions or capacities, which I consider all capacities or energies of consciousness and they, those that are uh, typically uh, harnessed or, uh, or manifest in a physical or human range of functioning, uh, consciousness expresses itself throughout the whole universe. And, um, and so you have, so what I'm trying to say in the book is, hey, as much as you're a physical being, an emotional being, a, an intellectual being, uh, you're having to struggle with your sense of identity, your capacity to be intimate, asking existential questions like meaning and purpose in life, you also have these intuitive faculties and direct spirit capacity to experience mm-hmm. spirit directly, not just right. in terms of religion, but more about people have the capacity to be aware outside their bodies. Near-death experiencers have shown us that. People have out-of-body experiences. People behold what they believe are the uh, spirits of the deceased. Now, are they all hallucinating? Some of them are, but are every one of them? Like William James, the father of American psychology, who's well known, once said, "Hey, all you need is one white crow to prove that all you know that that not all black, not all crows are black." So you know right. these experiences may be 
less frequent, but another one of his colleagues, uh, uh, Frederick Myers, with whom he started the whole psychic association coming out of Europe, uh, he, he once said that, you know, many of these what he called supernormal capacities of consciousness, like psychic abilities or the ability to be outside your body, have awareness outside the physical body. He said there will be a day in human evolution where they may be more normal or not right. or pulled more into the range where more and more people will have these experiences. They'll be less frightening. And maybe as we hopefully evolve uh, as a species, these will become faculties right. that may even serve us. Right. You know, I had a, I did a reading for a young lady last week and she said, you know, I've been journaling and I've been meditating and now I know things. And I, I said, yes, you do, because the more you meditate, you're getting the energy from above. And the more you journal, you're releasing what you're feeling and what you're thinking. And those are two things that really um, enhance somebody's psychic abilities. And you talk about that in your book about meditation and journaling. And it just seems to be almost like the basics. You know, if you meditate and you journal and you believe, then you have, you've got a, a whole different world to look into, don't you think? I agree. And, and you know, there's, a, there's a, some great research by uh, a woman, uh, who, psycho, uh, psychologist years ago who's passed away, um, Gertrude Schmeidler, uh, and she did some research called the sheep-goat effect and found that particularly with regards to psychic capacities, people who believed that it's possible or believed that they could possibly have psychic abilities did significantly better statistically uh, on psychic testing than those who didn't. And people who were uh, strong disbelievers, and this is fascinating, those who were strong disbelievers were significantly lower in their ability to hit on various psychic abilities. So it showed how their mind and their belief affected the outcome on mm -hmm. a very controlled psychic test like card guessing or dice throwing or things like that. Right, right. 25% maybe uh, would be the, the range where the people who were, who were strong believers that it's possible actually did right. increase statistically high or the ones who were strong disbelievers and skeptics Interestingly, they called it psi missing. They miss oh. significantly lower. Right, right. Well, it's and, and I call it faith because when you have, and that's where faith comes in, which is nothing new. So when you have faith in yourself and faith in your own abilities, then, you know, the more faith you have, then the more it, it like snowballs, you know. Oh, wow, that really works, you know. It's interesting when you talk about faith. And we had Joe um, Gallenberger on the show last week, and he talks about Vegas. I was thinking when you were talking about rolling the dice, inner Vegas, and he's been able to go to Vegas and and prove that if you are happy and have a certain frame of mind that, um, you know, you'll win. And that was, that's been his, uh, you know, um, experiment. And I just think it just, exactly what you're saying. If you believe and believe in yourself and you have faith and faith in a higher power, it changes your life completely. That's what I've learned. We're about seven seconds to break here, you guys. We're here. We're here with Frank Pusciutti and his book is called Chrysalis Crisis. We'll be right back with The High Road and more. Don't forget to visit Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to sign up for her intuitive personal coaching program or to book a psychic reading. Next time your parents or grandparents complain about walking to school uphill both ways, you can tell them about a village in China where getting to school is a real adventure. In the mountainous Sichuan province, children have to get to school from their tiny village of Atular by rappelling, abseiling, and clambering down a 2,500-foot cliff. Using ropes and bamboo ladders to scale this one-half-mile-high brachtumic, the journey is so difficult that the school children, ages 6 to 15, only return home every two weeks. What's the word for the fear of heights? Hypsophobia. A new set of steel stairs is now being considered to help make the journey to school safer. By the way, a brachtumic is a hill so steep it hurts the stomach of anyone who tries to climb it. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. 
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now welcome back to the High Road. Hey, welcome back to High Road to Humanity, and this is Nancy Yearout, your host. We're here today with Frank Bashuti, and we are talking about chrysalis crisis, meaning things that happen in your life that transform you spiritually. And on this last segment, I was wondering if Frank would talk to us about reincarnation, and, and I bring it up because I have people around me still that don't believe in reincarnation. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. What do you think we're doing here? But um, would you address your feelings on reincarnation? Let's talk about it. What do you think, Frank? Well, I think there's, uh, there's sufficient evidence. One of the things that drew me to Charlottesville is that what the department here at the University of Virginia has about 3,000 cases of children who produce information that is, uh, has, has pointed towards past lives where they're remembering things. So there's, and there's a lot of, uh, and there's explanations for how mind and memory can move yeah. uh, across the threshold of physical uh, physicality and return, and this is something that's been around. Plato talked about it, and long before him, other, other, uh, you know, like you know, philosophers or, or, or other spiritual paths. Talked about it. Hey, can I interrupt you a second? You told a story in the book. I was looking at my notes here, and um, what is the story about the little boy? And he wasn't his last name Houston. Why am I thinking that? And he, uh, his father took him to the museum, and he was like 22 months old, and then. He remembered his past life. Would you mind telling that story real quick? Because I think it's really interesting. Sure. It's, in, it's, it's a, my colleague who's the director of the, uh, the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia interviewed him. It, it's interesting in that many of the cases of the kids who seem to bring these memories back at an age where they're open to those impressions, uh, and it's not magical thinking. It's just that they're in a sort of a brainwave state, if you will, that's conducive to bringing these memories over. Right. Um, this child, he was just, you know, he was, uh, he just got a, t- he just was impressed by these planes and he went to a museum and he started talking to his parents about, you know, the name of the plane. And it turns out that he could tell, you know, he was, uh, he come up with the name of a ship and all these things were just coming out of the blue. No, no, po- even his parents didn't believe in reincarnation, by the way, but mm. yet he, he was kind of agitated at times. Like he would, he would play with this, they bought him a little toy plane and then he started like, crashing it into the table and he would start saying things like little boy little man crash and so so much information came out of him that they were able to actually identify the name of the boat and the father did some research found out that it was called the natoma bay and that this boat was a a ship that launched planes and in the second world war they ultimately found that this boy was able to identify the name of the person who he was in the Second World War, who died in a plane crash. And even at the point he did, he was able to, um, even in this life, um, he was able to help them identify his sister, who was still alive, and other people who oh, were wow. on, that, on that boat. So there's a, it's, a great, it's a great book by Jim Tucker. I'm trying to think of the name of it right now. Um, no, I just, the story really hit me. I was like, wow, you know, and I've heard these stories before, but it was pretty in-depth because he was able, like you say, to, to tell who he was. And I didn't get catch the part where they knew he knew his sister. Did he ever meet her or anything like that? 
Oh, I, I, I don't know for sure about that, but I know it caused a lot of angst on the part of his family. And again, think about this. If you're like a parent, wonders why your kid's having these what nightmares. They look like, you know, they, they're different from night terrors. And then the kid starts talking about different things. And there's a window there. There's kind of a, a window where that information is more able than readily able to come over into awareness. And then sometimes culturally or just in terms of the aging process, it's harder to access. And so the researcher, uh, Ian Stevenson, who started the program here at UVA and his colleague, they said that they trust more what's emitted and not actually uh, unearthed by a past life therapist. Although I've been trained in past life therapy and I do believe in certain cases one can be put in an altered state, particularly if one is ripe and needs the information that okay. some of that can be brought over. And people experience real significant therapeutic change sometimes by doing past life therapy. Right. Uh, but it's always difficult to say, are they making this up? Is it like creating a dream? Is it enabling them to get insight and emote uh, in ways that they need? Uh, but they, they at the University of Virginia, they just, they just mostly just research cases where parents are witnessing children bringing up information and then they work really hard in control to verify that information. And when they do, then they say, if there's no, po all the things that you could possibly rule out are ruled out, they usually say it's kind of a solved case and you're just going to have to accept it for what it is. Yeah. Now, what is the age group? You know, I know this young boy was 22 months old. It seems like, what is the age where kids start to forget? Because, you know, you hear kids say these things when they're maybe up till they're about three or four, and then it kind of seems to drift away. Is that right? That's just what I think. It does. And yet there are some cases where oh, as older, as younger adults, for instance, in trance and, and maybe, you know, see, there's this, if you were to put a, a, an EEG on somebody, you would say, like, what is the state of mind that or state of consciousness that someone might be in? Like, there are people who will have what they call breakthroughs that lead to spiritual emergencies when they're meditating. Sometimes okay. they're so it's this information is, is, if you will, comes from a spirit dimension and it's very subtle. And one needs to uh, one needs to get one's ego out of the way because I remember Dr. Stevenson when I first came down to see him because we're in we're in Thomas Jefferson's territory. So oh, I've had about twenty people come down here and tell me they think they used to be Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> so that's kind of like so ego the ego work. gets in the way, but ego gets in the way of all this spiritual work that we do. Well, it's certainly if you look at the way mind distills down spirit, I think of spirit as being out there in many, dimension, many dimensions as all part of consciousness. Mind is almost working like the negative and positive currents of electricity. One side of it is physicality and ego, and the other side of it is more transpersonal, beyond the personal, and subtle. And so the more we are able to uh, quiet physicality in our lives, so like when you meditate, you quiet that, or you quiet emotions, or you're not distracted by a guilty conscience, or you're able to, you have a sense of yourself as having the capacity to be right. able to, to these dimensions. When all those other keys that I talk about in the beginning of the book are used at a higher octave, if you will, to serve spirit, these impressions become more likely to be experienced. And when you start experiencing them, that's when you start, it almost starts a snowball effect. If I yes. had a precognition, I think, oh, wow, how did I know that information? It hasn't yeah, even no. Yeah. You know, and so you start seeing where belief, but also experience, then starts having a, 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 a an effect where you're more likely to open and be, and maybe like you said earlier, don't forget, in Carl Jung's frame of mind and the psychological type theory, you have two ways of being per perceiving. You have the sensing, which is very objective senses, tangibly oriented physicality, and you have mm -hmm. the intuitive. And right. the intuitive, it's it's more indirect. It comes through images and impressions and by way of the unconscious. And so do a lot of these other psychic capacities. They come right. that channel in a way. So when, when we talk, let's get back to reincarnation a little bit too. I believe, and I want to hear your belief, I believe we come here to learn and we keep coming and learning until we get it right. Because we can't, we need to experience it in a body to get the lesson is what I feel. What's your feeling on this? Why do we do? Why do we reincarnate? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think we're here to uh, evolve and grow in all those key areas I identify. And I think as we evolve and grow, um, 
the, like Teal Hard Desjardins talked about, we're always in the process of becoming. So even our traumas and our crises may open us and awaken us to areas that need to be developed. And as we gain more and more mastery, I think it's not like you got to jump up to the top of the spiritual mountain and become Jesus Christ immediately. It's right. more of a higher you go, the more you're, you expand your range of consciousness, the more joy and bliss and happiness you feel. So there is a, there's a payoff. There's a meritorious payoff. I agree with that because the more spiritual I've become, the more joyous I've become and the more compassionate too. Uh, I used to not be as compassionate, but the more spiritual you become and the more intuitive you become, I think then you're compassionate towards people. You're not angry at people. You see the lesson and you go for, you see the bigger picture maybe. I agree. I agree because compassion, it's same with even being a therapist has been a wonderful opportunity for me to say these things would have bothered me earlier in my life. But now I believe as a therapist, every, it all can be understood. And as you understand that, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're tripping over our humanity all the time. We're all imperfect and making mistakes. But if we can learn from them and evolve and grow and expand our range of consciousnesses, inevitably we learn to feel more. We have more compassion and empathy for others, more right. understanding. We see things that aren't just random and arbitrary. And There's a reason. To- There's a reason behind yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and it's nice that you do this work. It's not what? I'm sorry. Uh, No, I've said I feel very blessed to be able to have the opportunity to do it, believe me. Yeah, no, I do. And I, and I, you guys, this book is called Chrysalis Crisis. It's really interesting. There's lots of really cool stories in here. Um, we've got a couple minutes before um, we're going to leave you today. But I just, I want to thank you because the work you're doing is helping people. And the more we get out and talk about it, see, you and I are probably are a little bit older. And I'm not going to age myself, but we're a little bit older. But I would have loved to have learned more when I was younger. Um, because, but uh, like you say, when, when we talked in the beginning of the show, it's not, it wasn't so accepted. It seems like if we can get our younger people more involved in the intuitiveness and, you know, connecting with the divine and realizing why we're here, I think it can make a big difference for everybody. It'll change like the whole generational thing. What do you think about that? I agree. And as I wrote this book, I thought, well, you know, I'm getting up there. My friend reminded me, I thought I was, I said, I'm in my sixth decade. He said, no, you're not. You're in your seventh decade because you're in your late <laughs> sixth. I said, well, thanks for clarifying that for me. But I have a grandchild and yeah. a couple more that are coming down the pike. So I, uh, I often think to myself, well, you know, what? before I check out, don't know how many years I have left, but I want to at least pass along because I, I do feel like, you know, your perception and understanding of the bigger picture, I mean, to at least understand the forest of what we're doing right. here in the forest, right. the big picture. And you can go back to dealing with each tree, right? Right. Well, listen, I just want to thank you for being on the show today. Hey, you guys, next week we've got Servette Hassan here, and it's going to be a fun show. And I really appreciate you guys um, visiting us today on the high road. You can, uh, if you want a psychic reading, visit my website. It's nancyyearout.com. If you want to pick up Frank Pesciuto's book, Chrysalis Crisis, go to Amazon or go to Barnes & Noble. And you guys, um, until next week, we uh, really appreciate you guys coming on. Oh, and one more thing. if uh, you're interested, and I need to say this one more time, I'm going to do some psychic readings next week on the show. Next week on High Road for more stories filled with wisdom, love, and hope for our future. To sign up for my intuitive life coaching or a psychic reading, visit my website, www.nancyyearout.com. My email address is nancy at highroadtohumanity.com. So have a fabulous week and know that by staying on the high road, you will make it to your destination. <laughs>